From Susan G. Komen, this is Real Pink, a podcast exploring real stories, struggles, and triumphs related to breast cancer. We're taking the conversation from the doctor's office to your living room. Welcome to the Komen Health Equity Revolution podcast series. Each month, we invite in patients, community organizations, healthcare partners, researchers, and policy advocates to discuss strategies and solutions that drive the health equity revolution forward for multiple populations experiencing breast health inequities. Once breast cancer treatment ends, you can hardly wait to get back to normal life again. But your body may not respond as fast as you expected to. Your relationships may feel different, and you may soon learn that you will need to adjust to a whole new normal in your life. Things don't necessarily go back to the way they were before. These realizations can be all challenging from an emotional and mental perspective and may take some time to accept. Lauren Tarpley is here today to discuss the reality of what survivorship can really look like after treatment and how she was able to move past the disappointment of trying to get her old self back and to create a plan for her future. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What an intro. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, this is an important conversation, and, and, uh, and I really want to hear more about it. But let's start with your story. Uh, so tell us about your diagnosis, because I understand it was a little atypical, and, and could just kind of walk us through that. Sure. Uh, diagnosis. Oh, let's take a trip back in time. No. Um, so I was 34. Um, I had been getting, uh, annual mammograms since I was 30. My maternal grandmother had breast cancer. Um, and so, like I said, 30 just seemed like a really good benchmark to get my life together and, you know, get a lot of baselines. I was, um, you know, on my way to getting married and I wanted to have kids. And so I just wanted to get checked out. So 30, 31, 32, everything was great. Um, 33, had a baby, so had a different kind of imaging, all that stuff. So we're in the middle of the pandemic. It's, you know, July of 2020. And um, I had missed my one year mark because, you know, um, like a lot of doctor's offices were closed, things like that. Um, and I had gone to the OBGYN. Um, to check on a pregnancy that I was in turn losing. So that is unfortunate, but, uh, you know, a lot of the interviews I've done and a lot of the time I talk about my diagnosis, I kind of leave that part out just because I never want, you know, the miscarriage, um, to overshadow the diagnosis. Right. <laughs> and then also that's just right, yeah. compounded, um, bad news. And so I, I leave that out sometimes, but, um, yeah, we were there to confirm that we were losing a pregnancy and all, you have to go every day for the blood work. And on my last day, um, I had, you know, I had a list of concerns. I was like, I might not be able to get back in here. It's the pandemic. I had a list of concerns to go over my doctor with, but it just so happened that my doctor was out with COVID and it was it was just the on-call doctor that was going over my blood work. And I read in my list of questions. And the last one was, hey, if, you know, I've got this nagging pain in my armpit. It's been mm. happening for a few months now. And, you know, I, I wrote, I texted myself when I remembered. And so I went over that with him and he said, oh, okay. He examined me. He said it looked like an ingrown hair. And if it gave me any trouble, you know, moving forward to come back. 
So I was not ignored. I wasn't dismissed, but I genuinely didn't feel heard because we all know what an ingrown hair looks and feels like. And it didn't feel that way. It was a dull, nagging pain. It wasn't a sharp pain. It wasn't shocking when it happened. It was just annoying. And so from there, that answer didn't sit well with me. I had my order for my annual mammogram and I called the imaging center and I just said, you know, things might look like they're lightening up, you know, perspective from July, 2020, uh, things were opening back up. And so I called and they said, we had a cancellation. Why don't you come on down here and get your mammogram today? It was a guardian angel. It was a blessing. Um, I went in there, I had my mammogram. And, um, you know, a couple of days later, I got a call that said, you know, you had some asymmetry, you had some calcifications on your mammogram. We're not really, really worried. We just want to get a different picture. We want a different with a, you know, a different kind of monitoring. And I said, okay. And they didn't really seem like they were too concerned. So I wasn't very concerned. And also another guardian angel right then and there, my doctor called me. So my Mm. doctor who had been out with COVID called me because she had received those uh, results from the mammogram, but also she was calling to check on me from the miscarriage. So I went over those results with her and she was like, you're definitely gonna go and get the follow-up imaging. That's very important. I don't care for the wording that from this report and the findings, and I would like a different view as well. So because of that call from my doctor, I went back and I went back, they did the different imaging, they requested a biopsy, and then from there, I was diagnosed. So, uh, I mean, you know, you're, you're 34 years old. That's extremely young to get a diagnosis. Like, what was that experience like getting that diagnosis at such a young age? I mean, you, you've been going in for mammograms. So were, were you genuinely surprised or, or not? I was genuinely surprised because I didn't have any of the other symptoms. All of the symptoms that you commonly hear, a lump or puckering or discharge or blood from your nipple or anything like that, all of these extremely unfortunate things point to breast cancer, but I didn't have a lump. You know, I was irregular, to be completely transparent, I was irregularly doing my self-exams, but I didn't have any of Mm. those common symptoms. So I was completely knocked sideways. And Mm. I want to say this with a caveat. When I got that news, which I feel like a lot of people do, unless they have been around cancer a lot, I immediately thought I was going to die. <laughs> now, I mean, so did you start treatment right away? I mean, I know you said, you know, there was a there there was supposed to be a delay for the referral. I mean, how did all that work out? So I'm I call myself professionally persistent. <laughs> I ended up being seen three days later. I ended up being seen that Wednesday, not two to three weeks later by the referral that my uh, GP had given me. And I do not blame him at all. All GPs know is people in their network and who they've been told to refer people to. But that first referral did way more damage than someone calling me and telling me I had cancer. She was going through all of the scenarios, like if you are stage four, if, if this has spread, if it has done this, we need to get you into a PET scan. We need to biopsy your lymph nodes. We need to do this. If this has happened, this will happen. If this hasn't happened, I'm like, I need you to start over at breast cancer. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Start at stage one. Yeah. It was a three hour appointment. I'm doing genetic testing. I had my lymph nodes biopsied on both sides. Like 
all the things. My mom is there. She's telling family history I didn't even know about, but it was a lot. And I did have to change surgeons after that appointment. I never saw that doctor again. Um, The surgeon I have now is a literal angel walking among us. She is the antithesis of that other doctor. So again, that's why second opinions are so important. Um, But I ended up being uh, permitted to do IVF because we were in the midst of trying to expand our family. Um, So in the next month, I had PET scans, CTs, biopsies. Um, I mean, I had I had MRIs, I had brain MRIs. I mean, to make sure I hadn't spread to my brain. I had bone scans, right, yeah. port placed. I did a round of IVF, and then I started um, chemo the day after my egg retrieval. I started on October eighth, which is my husband and I's anniversary. So one wow. month later, I started chemo after I was diagnosed. So like, so how, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, how did you while hold it working, all together? I mean, how, while working full time yeah. with a baby. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did, I mean, how'd you keep it together? I didn't, I didn't handle it well. I had no idea what to do. I, it, thankfully, no one in my nuclear family had gone through this personally. They've all been caretakers, but you know, it was a shock for all of us. It was a learning curve for all of us. Um, and I just, I mean, genuinely, when it happens, you have no idea what's happening. You go to Cambridge Beach, they tell you what they expect to happen. They tell you what's happened to people before. But I had questions like, what happens to African-American women? Our hair is different. So is it going to fall out as quickly or will it fall out later? Does it all fall out at the same time? No one told me about my nose hair falling out. Nose hair is extremely important, people. I had nosebleeds for five months. There's symptoms they just don't tell you about. I didn't throw up time from treatment, but I definitely had stomach issues. So, I mean, you know, in chemo teach, they talk to you about your hair falling out, growing up. They don't tell you about losing taste. They don't tell you about losing smell. They don't tell you how the steroids are going to keep you up for days. They don't tell you how, you know, everybody thinks you're going to get chemo and just be super thin. Like, those are different cancers. I I shreked out like I thought I would. I turned into Fiona. I gained 40 pounds in a blink of an eye and I lost all my hair. Like it's just, it, the treatment is going to treat everyone differently. And so chemo is important to tell you what could happen, but you never know what's going to happen. So I'm curious, like what did your support system look like and what did you need from them during that time? So... I mean, the support system for me was just, it was who was around because it was COVID. I lost, Mm. I lost the majority of my friends. Mm. That's just a fact of the matter. I haven't spoken to them since. I told people on Zooms or FaceTimes and I said, I'm telling you this so you can get checked. I never thought it would genuinely, I never thought it would happen to me until I was 70 or what have you, as much as you can fathom that being diagnosed. Um, oh my God, Lauren, I'm so sorry. Please let me know if there's anything you can do. Never heard from them again. There are a couple of people who this brought us. We reunited, we became closer and we are good. My family has been a rock throughout. My in-laws have been instrumental. 
my parents, my sister have been instrumental and my husband has been the most supportive person. So now that you, you did, you know, finish treatment on time and, and you rang the bell, um, how have you been able to take the you know, power back and focus on what your plan for the future is going to be? So I, I wrote everything down. And then after I felt like I was kind of in the clear, I started looking for people that were like me, that were young and or mothers and or African-American. It didn't have to be all of the above, but I wanted to find people that I could um, commiserate with and share information. And I found a huge community online. I mean, Susan G. Komen was very, very helpful in that because it's like someone tag someone, tag someone, tag someone. And I mean, now I've got thousands of people that I interact with week, at least weekly. And now I'm super busy. We just had a baby. Um, and I'll definitely get to that. But I just wrote everything down. And then I was super transparent with everything. I would talk about my stomach issues or how hard it was to like potty train someone when, you know, I've got all this. Other, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to potty train a boy, which is hard in and of itself. But while going through treatment, while being stuck at home, while having to lice all our groceries, because we were still doing that, um, all of that stuff. And um and so that's that. And that's how I got through it. And that's how I just realized like how much of a monumental impact everything had been. Wow. All right. So, uh, so Lauren, last question. Um, do you have any final advice you'd like to share with listeners about how to navigate survivorship and in particular, those who are younger? So the one thing, and I'm really glad, I'm really appreciative of you guys had me on today, especially about the topic of survivorship. Survivorship is, I think it's almost more taboo than talking about cancer because there's treatment for cancer, right? That like everyone, everyone is against cancer. There's no one that's for cancer, right? But we know what we're, we know what to do. Are you on AC? Are you on Taxol? Are you on THCP? Are you, are you doing six, 18, 21 rounds? Are you doing surgery before or after chemo? Do you have to do radiation? Are you doing proton? There's these questions. Then you get into recon. Right. Oh, then we got the surgery. Which surgery are you going to get? Which recon are you going to go? And I know this is more applicable to breast cancer instead of just, you know, all cancers, but so then that's that's where the line is, right? You've got treatment, you're finished, you ring the bell, you're in remission, great. And then everyone expects for right. everything to pop back. When everything is literally shattered, your life, your relationships, your sense of self, your like, what do I look like? Who even am I? And meanwhile, mm -hmm. we've been living yeah. this whole time in a state of arrested development. So sometimes I still feel like I'm 34 and I'm not, I'm 38, 40 is right around the corner. My kid is starting kindergarten, but I still look at him sometimes like he's 18 because it's like hot tub time machine and I got hit in the head in the eighties and I just wear pastel windsuits all day, right? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. that's kind yeah. of what it is. And so I think, again, I think survivorship is just this taboo because no one wants to get into the weeds or in the nitty gritty of how mental, how much of a mental fight survivorship is. You are mm. against, you against your greatest fear, right? So you've already had your greatest fear shoved in your face, your premature mortality, right? So then somehow you compartmentalize or just disassociate and you get through treatment and you get through that and you smile in social events and whatever, and you do what you have to do. and 
uh, whether, you know, whatever. You do whatever you have to do. But then when right. you get to survivorship, there's no one telling, there's no survivorship teach. There's no chemo teach. It's not like you're going to, progress is not linear. You know, there's no one unless you seek out a trauma therapist, which I have. Um, that right. was rec which was a referral for me from my oncologist, but per my request, that wasn't something where they were like, you're a survivor now, so here are your tools. And so that's why I felt like I had to write a book about it because again, even when you're in treatment, there are countless grants. There are people lining up to help you. Since I've been a survivor, I have qualified for two grants in two years. When, when right. I was in treatment, I easily got 20. Hmm. The bills still come. The monitoring still happens. The appointments are still happening. So the money is still going out. The money is still being requested from me. And, but there's, there's no support, right? I have to right. seek out my mm. own mental health support. I have to seek out my own community of survivors. Um, you have to tap in and out when you, when you can and with whatever bandwidth you have. But, um, that's the hardest part to me, I would say, because there's just, it's these open ended, there, there are no expectations and there's no one leading you and everyone around you is saying, well, you're healthy now. So act like it, look like it, feel like it. You should be grateful. You should be happy. And we can't tell people how quickly to heal from their personal traumatic event. We, we can't. There are some days I totally forget I went through it. And then there are some days I can think about nothing else. This is to people who are in treatment. This is to people who are out of treatment. This is to anyone who's just diagnosed. <clears throat> I'm going to say this very eloquently. Do whatever you want. <laughs> Talk to your oncologist. But I will tell you, I, I don't drink anymore. I never thought I would say those words. I never, ever. I, lo I loved drinking. It's social. It tastes, I, it tastes good to me. It made me feel light and airy and all these other things. I never thought almost th three years after a diagnosis, I would say, I don't even drink anymore. I genuinely don't. Well, I don't go out, so I don't need social lubrication. But when I was in treatment, I talked to my doctor and I said, I really enjoy wine. And he's like, then keep drinking wine. And I was like, well, sushi is my favorite food. And he's like, well, then you should eat sushi as often as you can stomach to eat anything. I think that there are these preconceived notions about what causes cancer and what doesn't. And there are very few things that are bona fide causing cancer. This is where your cancer came from. I think you need to talk to your doctor about what your specific illness is, what your subtype is, and what is going to be detrimental to treatment. And if it's not, then live your best life because you are still alive. All right. All right. That's good advice. That's good advice. Well, Lauren, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining another episode of the Komen Health Equity Revolution podcast series. We will continue to galvanize the breast cancer community to support multiple populations experiencing breast health inequities to advance and achieve breast health equity for all. To learn more about health equity at Komen, please visit komen.org forward slash health equity. Thanks for listening to Real Pink, a weekly podcast by Susan G. Komen. 
For more episodes, visit realpink.coman.org. And for more on breast cancer, visit coman.org. Make sure to check out at Susan G. Komen on social media. I'm your host, Adam. You can find me on Twitter at AJ Walker or on my blog, adamjwalker.com.